So today, I want to make a, a pretty bold statement right at the beginning. And that is that all of you worship something. All of you worship something. Now, you might say, well, of course, uh, of course I worship something. I'm in church, and we just got out of a time of worship through music. But, but more deeply than that, I, I mean that, that sort of fundamental to the human experience is this idea of worship. That if you go into cultures that don't have established churches, if you go into cultures that, uh, that, that are very primitive uh, in, in nature, you will find that they have, they have uh, come up with some form of, of worship, some fashion of worship, something, someone, sort of fundamental to the human experience is this idea of, of pointing to something beyond ourselves and worshiping that. Now, sometimes we, we stop at ourselves and we don't point to that thing beyond ourselves, but we say, I am the object of my own worship. But fundamental to the human experience is that we all worship something or someone. Now, a couple of weeks ago in our, uh, in a, in our series, which we're in right now called Remade, uh, celebrating light, new life in Christ, looking at what it means to have new life in Christ, uh, we began to, we were looking at this idea of uh, what, it, what it means to be truly converted. What does this new life in Christ actually look like? And, and we were talking about conversion out of Acts chapter 10 and the story of Cornelius. And what we learned is that one of the one of the evidences of, of this conversion that Cornelius experienced was that he praised God. And, and at first that seems like, oh, there's, that's no big deal. That doesn't really mean much. Uh, sure, we all sort of praise God. But, but we, we began to unpack this idea of worship a little bit further and, and praising God and what that actually means. And, and ultimately what we said was that worship is giving ultimate value to something. That, that to worship something is to give that thing or that person our ultimate adoration. That above all else, it is that thing or that person that we're seeking to please in our life. That's what it means to worship. And, and what we talked about in that message is that there's actually all kinds of things that, that steal our adoration from the one true God, the one who is, is truly deserving, the one who is, is worthy of our ultimate adoration. A lot of times we, 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 we rob him of that and we give our ultimate adoration to other things. And, and among that list were, were things like approval. That we, that we organize and center our entire lives. Sometimes, sometimes we know this. Sometimes it's operating in our lives and we're not even aware of it. But, but some, we, we, we bring to the center of our lives where every action is driven towards gaining approval of some kind. And if that's you today, uh, there's an argument to be made that what you, what you ultimately worship is that approval. Now, other things that we talked about were independence. Or, or power, and I to illustrate that uh, this one person who whose worship was directed toward power was uh, before he came to know Christ or before he got religion, he was on a sexual conquest where he would uh, he would be interested in women only long enough to to sleep with them, and then once he had sort of accomplished that, and in order to demonstrate his power over them, he was no longer interested. Well, well, then he. He came to know Christ and his, his behavior changed, but inside of a Bible study, he had to dominate the discussion. His word always had to be the last word. And, and we use that to illustrate that ultimately what he worshipped was power. Whether that expressed itself in sort of sexual conquest or whether that expressed itself inside the, the walls of the church and religion and morality, uh, his object of worship ultimately had not changed. And so approval, independence, power... Uh, in our culture, a big one of what we worship is product, production or utility. Uh, and we, this plays itself out in the fact that, uh, that God becomes less valuable if we don't see him as being productive. God, you haven't done anything for me. You haven't, you haven't produced an, an answer as I expect it and according to this prayer request. And so because you haven't produced anything tangible that I can get my hands on, you, you, I've determined that you are, not, uh, you, you are not valuable because ultimately what I adore and what I worship is production and utility. Uh, and then another one that um, I have in, in sort of in my own life been doing some reflecting and uh, I think that anyone in a position of leadership would struggle with this one, uh, significance. <clears throat> the ultimately, 
uh, sometimes what we value more than anything is this idea that I am significant. Uh, of course, what the gospel says is that God so loved the world, God so loved you, that he gave his only begotten son, that if you would just place your faith in him, you would be given eternal life. In other words, sometimes the object of our, of our worship and what we strive so deeply for, we actually already possess in Christ. And that's what the Lord was really speaking to me about, that as I see my own sort of search for significance, uh, do you, what do all of you think of me? How many uh, people are, are, are paying attention to the things that, that I teach, all of these things? Do I feel significant? And uh, God said uh, to me, oftentimes, uh, the object of our worship is that which we already possess in Christ. And so this idea, ultimate adoration in what we worship And what we said is that new life and conversion will ultimately come when there's a switch in our worship. That when we we stop worshiping approval, acceptance, power, significance, and when we switch our ultimate adoration to God himself, the person of Christ, that's when new life will come to us. That's what we said a couple weeks ago. Um, what I want to do today is I want to build on this idea of, of idols in our life. Uh, because I, th- I, think that it's, um, I think it's a significant idea that, that we need to explore. And so I've, enti- I've titled this message, uh, New God. And some of you when, you, like, when you got here today and you looked at the bulletin and you realized that the title of the message was New God, you started drafting an angry email uh, to just prepare to call me a heretic and uh, just based on the title. So, so if, if that's you today, just go ahead and delete that email that's in your outbox. Everything's fine. What we're, I'm not going to tell you today that God changes. I'm going to tell you that when we come into new life in Christ, our God changes. In other words, it's, it's exactly what, what I've just said, that, that when we're brought into new life in Christ, there's, there's a fundamental switch between that which we used to worship and ultimately adore to now our, the God of our life has become the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And so if all of us are, are worshiping something or someone and worship is giving ultimate value to something, whether an object or a person, uh, then, then whatever takes God's place is an idol. Now, that's not very deep, and you guys have heard that before, but I want to spend the whole morning unpacking this idea, and I want us to realize that an idol is, is really making a good thing, a God-given thing, an ultimate thing. Right? Because whatever the idol is in your life and whatever idol you might be struggling with, if it were to be placed in proper perspective, if it were to find its seat under the, under the God of the universe who deserves the seat and the primary allegiance of your heart, if that thing that is your idol were put in a proper place, it would be a good thing. Right? I mean, some level of power and influence is good as long as it's used to point to God. A level of acceptance is good because we need to know that we're accepted. We need to, to show God's love to one another in this community. And so we, we've got to sort of form an embrace uh, around one another. So acceptance and all of these things are good. They become an idol, though, when they're out of place. Does that make sense? So an idol is ultimately a good and God-given thing that has turned into an ultimate thing. And here's what I want us to understand in general about idols. Is that idols, when they have our ultimate adoration, control us. They control us. And this is the point that I was trying to make very briefly inside of that message about conversion. Is that if this thing has our ultimate adoration, it ultimately also controls us. Let me tell you why. When we, because our idols, if they receive our ultimate adoration, we love them, we trust them, and we obey them. Believing that if we love, they will love us back. That if we trust in that object of worship, then they won't let us down. And if we obey them, then they'll give us what we want. And so in our loving, in our trusting, in our obeying, 
If those things do not belong to God himself, then there is something other than God in his place, and it is controlling us. And it's an idol. Now, this is a big idea, and it's, a, it's, a, it's something that I think uh, at some point all of us will struggle with. But here's the thing. Those things that, that someone, whatever it is, that's sitting in God's place in your heart, your idol that you're, you're giving your love and your trust and your obedience to, while we hope that that will never let us down, while we hope that it will give us what we want, ultimately, it will always let us down and it will never give us what we want because something sitting in God's seat where it doesn't belong is simply incapable of being a God. In other words, the search for significance makes a terrible savior. In other words, your pursuit of power makes a terrible God because it will always let you down. And it's an idol. Okay. So all of this is an introduction. This is pretty heavy, huh? You guys doing all right? Now, some of you will be like, wow, this is all good, man. I'm off the hook because I don't have a little statue in my house that I bow down and worship to, right? Now, and and biblically, idols are sort of this physical thing, like in the Old Testament, that the nation of Israel would form and fashion and then literally bow down to. And some of you are like, I don't do that, and so I'm good. Uh, I don't need this sermon. I'll just uh, pass it on to a friend that I think needs it. And, uh, but biblically, yes, there are physical idols, but biblically, there are also more internal idols. And that's what I think our, our culture, where our current culture is at. Uh, we don't struggle so much with literally bowing down to these things that we've fashioned, uh, but we struggle with bow- bowing our hearts to more internal idols. And they're, they're really enemies of our heart. And so, yes, idols can be external, uh, but they can be something internal as well that we substitute in the place of God and give our ultimate adoration. And, uh, you know, it, there's, as I was thinking about this message, I, I realized that there are so many possible idols in our world and in our culture, uh, that it would be impossible for me to cover them all. I preach pretty long, but that would be long, I mean long sermon. So I, I've, I, I went on one side and I said, I can't, I can't cover all the idols. And then I went on the other side and I said, but if I never talk about something specific, then, then it will never really intersect our life. That if all I talk about is, is sort of in generalities about idols, uh, then, then that, that may not just allow the spirit to, to move in a way, uh, or, or the Yugal wouldn't have the sort of the ears to listen and, and be specific. So what I want to do today is I want to talk very specifically about an idol that I think is so prevalent in our culture. And uh, Jesus says that the number one competitor for our hearts is money. The number one competitor for our hearts is money. Now, those aren't Jesus' words exactly, but that's the essence of what he says. You cannot serve two masters. So in other words, Jesus knew right from the outset, and Jesus knew in ancient culture that money was an idol that we would struggle with, perhaps more than any of the others. And so I want to talk to you today um, about the, the pursuit of, of money and wealth. And if money is the pursuit, then the counterfeit God is greed. Now, just as there's a group of you that said, oh, I'm good, I don't need to hear this sermon on idols because I don't, I don't uh, you know, bow down and worship to something I, I have uh, fashioned, um, probably a larger percentage of you are like, oh, this is all good, man, that's all right. Because <laughs> I, I don't struggle with greed. I don't struggle with greed. In fact, I would, I would say I have never as a pastor had someone come up to me and said, you know what, pastor, my problem is I just, I just spend way too much money on myself. I, I've never had someone had, come up to me and say, I, I just really struggle with greed. I've had people come up to me and say that they struggle with any number of issues that run the gamut, but I've never had anyone come up to me and say, I struggle with greed. Here's the reason why. The idol of greed hides itself from its victims. 
It hides itself from those of us that are worshiping it. So greed is, is sort of this, um, this, it's a secret idol. And the, the reason I think it's, it's a secret is that it's really subjective, right? I, I mean, when we talk about money, when we talk about rich, when we talk about poor, when we talk about all these things, greed is, is, a, this, is this really subjective thing. And so we don't think of ourselves as greedy because, uh, because they spend more money on themselves than I do. Um, we don't think of ourselves as, as, as greedy because, yes, I spend a lot of my, myself, spend a lot of money th- on myself. I spend a lot of time thinking about myself. Uh, a lot of things are, are me and me and me, but I donate to a good cause. And so we deflect it. And, and it's, it hides itself from us because we, we never think of ourselves in this area of money and greed. We never think of ourselves in comparison to uh, to the rest of the world or, or the city in general, we always compare ourselves to those in our neighborhoods. And so if we can work hard enough and make just enough money to barely afford to live in this certain neighborhood, then we look around and we say, then we compare ourselves to everyone else in the neighborhood. They make more money than I do. They drive a nicer car than I do. And we sort of deflect it. And, and greed and the issue of greed keeps itself secret from us. And so I know, that's, I know that's not fun to hear, but that's the reality. And so whether, whether we just totally make it subjective or whether we deflect it in some way by comparing ourselves to just the neighborhood that we live in, uh, then it really becomes an issue. So what I want to do today is I want to look at the story of Zacchaeus and uh, allow God to speak to us about this, this idol, uh, this issue, and, and really begin to come to grips uh, with this thing in general, idolatry, uh, but also very specifically, I believe that God wants to speak to some of you about the idol of greed. And so we're going to look at Zacchaeus. It's found in Luke chapter 19. So you can turn there. There's some Bibles somewhere in your neighborhood under the chairs. If you brought your own Bible, uh, we welcome electronic devices and Bibles. That, you know, We don't look at you funny if you break out your phone or your iPad or anything. Uh, that's totally fine here. And so, uh, but find the scripture. Uh, we would love for you to follow along with me as I read. It's Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. And uh, it, it says this. Now Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And then a man, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector. And he was wealthy. Now he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short... He could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now when Jesus had reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, for I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. Now all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And so Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, I'll spare you my rendition of singing the song about Zacchaeus, but I have a three-year-old at home, so when I'm studying this, that's like all I can think about uh, was, is this little song. So I'll, I'll spare you. Uh, sometimes I say that I'll spare you, and then I don't, and I sing it anyway, but I won't do that today. Uh, so, so it's a pretty simple story, pretty straightforward, but I, again, I think there's some important details that are included in the narrative that help us get a handle on this idea of greed. And first, I think the first two verses really talk to us about the seductive power of wealth and money. The seductive power of wealth and money. Now, now Rome, uh, the, the Roman rule in this ancient world is, is very pervasive. Uh, I mean, it is everywhere. And, and what happened is that Rome would conquer uh, nations and then make them Roman colonies. And so by, by conquering through violence and through war, different nations, they would make those nations basically Roman colonies. They would grow their kingdom uh, through violence, through overcoming uh, nations, and, and then just bring them right in into 
uh, the, the rule of Rome. And so Rome is going about, they're doing all of that. Uh, and, and what they would, ha- what would happen is they would, they would tax these colonies very heavily. I mean, you don't, you don't like the taxes that you pay. Uh, it, was, it is nothing compared to what these people were paying to Rome in terms of taxes. There was a very heavy tax load. And what it would do is, is by taxing these conquered nations heavily, Rome would essentially be taking their wealth and adding it to their own through taxes. And they would tax them so heavily that they would leave these, these colonies that used to be nations impoverished. I mean, they would make the people dirt poor through their tax system. And, and what happened is they, they had basically two local representatives of Rome. It was, it was the, the person that Rome had sent to sort of oversee the colony. And then it was any, anyone from those nations that would willingly step up and be the tax collector for Rome. And this gives us a little bit of a picture of why the New Testament over and over calls tax collectors sinners. It was because they were basically, as a job, holding their allegiance to Rome, and they would be hated by their family, and they were given provision to collect for themselves whatever they wanted beyond what Rome was asking. And so in order for someone to take the job of tax collector, they had to basically denounce their family, denounce their allegiance to, to, to that sort of that local nation that had now been, been captured uh, and been conquered by Rome, and be hated. And you might ask the question, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone become a tax collector? Because it was a very high-paying job. It was like, I may have to forsake my family. I may have to forsake my allegiance. I may have to, to, to show and demonstrate and work for this, this nation that has captured us and conquered us. But with a sly grin, the heart says, but look how much money I could make in the process. And so they would carry out Roman rule and profit from it. Now, think of, of, of something in modern day or more modern terms. Think of um, Nazi collaborators who oppressed their own people in World War II. I mean, this was the level of hate toward a tax collector because the tax collector was, in essence, oppressing their, the, local, the local people, their people. From their nation, by carrying out the Roman rule, they were oppressing those families, making them poor, making them impoverished, and thereby being hated for what they were doing. So one one example is is the Nazi collaborators uh, oppressing their own people. Another one would be uh, a more modern, I don't know if you've heard this term, but robber barons. Uh, That's a modern term. Robber barons are people who sell uh, people mortgages that they can't afford while themselves they're making millions. And so that's the, that's the frame for a tax collector. These were hated, hated people. Why would anybody want to do that? It's because of the seductive power of money and wealth. It draws us in. And so backed by military power, the tax collector could require that people give more than the Roman government had contracted him to collect and basically lining his own pockets. And if you didn't have a problem with it, then you were then subject to military consequence. So these people, backed by military power, could require anything they wanted of you and then just send to Rome whatever Rome had asked for, lining their own pockets in the process. And what Luke tells us and what he, what he lines the story up in the first couple of verses is two things. He was the chief tax collector. And he was wealthy. Now that's critical for us to understand in this story. Because I think it's pretty easy for us to say that the Zacchaeus has greed as his idol. That he let go of all of these things in order to carry out Roman rule. In order to become rich. 
And I would say to you today that if you're here and you're looking at a career and you're looking at a career change and your only thing, the only framework by which you're looking at that is how much money can I make, I would argue that greed may be your idol today. That your ultimate adoration may be attached to this green paper that is merely a means of exchange in our culture. Because that's all it is. Money is simply just a means of exchange in our culture. But if you're here today and you're looking at your career or career change with the singular focus of how much money can I make here, then I encourage you to be real discerning about where your heart's at and maybe lying where greed is what you give your ultimate adoration to. When we're looking at a career and a job, what we ought to be asking is, what am I passionate about? What has God designed me to do? What is my calling? Those are the kinds of questions that we ought to be asking when looking at a career or a career change. And so Zacchaeus is is head first in idolatry, I would say. And, and, And again, just as I said that these other things make a lousy savior or a lousy God, money makes a terrible master. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And then Paul makes it very explicit, which is idolatry. And greed which is idolatry. And so what Paul, what Paul says very sort of succinctly, very directly, very in your face, Luke is trying to tell us through this narrative of Zacchaeus. He's essentially telling us the same thing. But in order to really get a handle on this, we have to understand what is greed really? Because I, I believe that God is already speaking to some of you. And he's already pointing these things out where greed may have a, a handle on your heart. But, but it's really hard to, to, to nail down if we don't really understand what greed is. And some of you are wondering, I think this might be me, but I'm not sure. So what is this greed really? Well, Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, and this is what I was trying to teach the kids with Mary's Mountain Cookies, uh, is is that what, what Jesus says is, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. Here's what I would want to say to you today about greed. Greed is not just the love of money and for the rich. But greed is sort of this excessive worry about money. And when we understand it in that perspective, we begin to understand that we can be, that greed can be our God, whether we're rich or we're poor. See, some of you, as I've gone along this, this, this message, have been like, you know, this isn't me because I'm broke. I'm just broke. But if we understand greed as excessive worry about money, and if we understand Jesus' words that, that life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. See, for the rich person and the wealthy person, greed expresses itself by always trying to come up with new ways to make more money, by always trying to think of, of what else can I, can I buy? Can I get this and this, please? Like for the wealthy person, it's how much, how can I keep spending more? How can I keep making more? But for the, for the person living in poverty or for the middle class, Greed is a sort of consistent mindset on what I don't have. For the rich, it's here's what I have and how can I make more? For the poor, it's look at what I don't have. And that's still greed. Greed can express itself in the rich and the poor. And so either way, our tendency in life is to accumulate accumulate more and more and more whether i'm rich or where whether i'm poor which again is a very subjective standard because if you drove here today in world terms you are filthy rich if you have two cars in your home you are so rich 90% of the world would look at you and say two cars in their own garage, how could I ever be so rich? So again, rich or poor, very subjective standard. 
And here's, here's what I think greed ultimately is. I believe that by accumulating, whether accumulating more because I'm rich or be, whether I'm worrying about accumulating because I'm living in poverty, ultimately what this is, is I, I try to accumulate because I want to build a safe house around me. That the, my, my possessions, my, all the things that I've accumulated, if I, can just, if I can just build a wall of safety around me with all of these things, then all of a sudden I'm under the, I'm, I'm, I'm under the impression that I am in fact safe. And the reason that this is spiritually damaging, listen to me, church, the reason this is spiritually damaging and ultimately idolatry is because we fear that God, the God who gives us every single breath, will stop providing for us if we stop accumulating. Let me say that again. The reason that greed is is dangerous spiritually is because we sometimes believe that if we stop accumulating, the God who gives us breath will stop providing. Here's the thing. Greed does not have a finish line. Like some of us might say, yeah, yeah, I see your point, but, but really, Pastor, I, I just need to get a little bit more and, and, and to, to build that kind of safe house, and, and then I'll be okay, and then I'll stop. But if greed is your God, it knows no finish line. Greed will always push you towards accumulating more and more and more and more. Greed does not have a finish line. And greed is ultimately a failure to trust in God's provision. So we put our stuff in God's place. We put our pursuit of stuff in God's place. We put our worry about stuff in God's place. And all of it ties back to this idea of greed. It's ultimately a failure to trust in God's provision and becomes an idol in our life. So accumulation, excessive anxiety over money, and then Jesus' words, watch out for your life does not consist in the, in the uh, abundance of possessions. Gives us a pretty clear picture of greed. I want to be super honest with you for a moment and, and tell you how this has played out in my own life. Uh, one good thing and then one bad thing. Uh, because greed always wants to accumulate in our house, we want to fight against greed. And so we have a regular practice of every six months, we, we sweep our house for anything that we haven't used, don't use anymore, don't need, all of these kinds of things. And we just clean out. And we have like a huge garage sale every year. And uh, we just have a spot in our basement that is like the getting rid of junk place. And it's because we want to fight against this, uh, this idea of accumulation. And so I feel like in one area, Amy and I uh, do pretty well in this. The other area has really nothing to do with Amy but with me and where I maybe don't do so well with this. Um, you guys know that I love technology. Uh, I especially love it if it's super expensive and has an Apple logo on it. And, uh, and you know, I, 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 um, I, I just I appreciate technology. I, I, when, when new technology comes out, I'm just like, Really? It can do that? You know, like, uh, like I'm just easily impressed when it comes to little devices and, and what they do and, and all of these things. So, so whether it's like th- your DVD player has a better picture and connects to the Internet and it's called a Blu-ray player, you know, I mean, it's like I'm just like, really awesome, you know, I can connect to the Internet on another device, you know, because I already, ha- you know, I only have 50 things that connect to the Internet. I need another one. Um, and so so I'm easily impressed. The way this has played out, though, in my life is I found myself getting so focused on one particular sort of kind of technology, whatever it was. And it was, it was like singular focus, have to get this, willing to sell Jaden to get it. Not, not that far, not that far. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like pushing like all of, all of this stuff. And there was just like this, this chain of, of really big sort of electronic purchases that I had made. And they consumed my heart. But I rationalized it. 
because I've never made one single purchase of a big technology item brand new. And so I'd be like, sure, you know, I want it, but I'm not paying full price for it. And I'm buying it used. And so what happened? Greed in my heart was what? Deflected by comparison. I'm not as bad as all those people. And I see, this, I see this happening in my own heart every time uh, there's a new Apple device that comes out, right? So I'm preaching from an iPad today. I love my iPad. Then the new iPad came out. And this is like an original iPad. It's like a dinosaur, right? I mean, it doesn't even have a camera. Some of you are not feeling that. That's okay. That's okay. I'm just, I'm just trying to let you into my heart, okay? The new iPad comes out. This is, this is very vulnerable, by the way, so stick with me. But the new iPad comes out, and I, I think to myself, if I sold my original iPad and the Blu-ray player that I had just saved up money for and wanted so bad and bought on sale, and then I donated blood, and then I... And I'm like doing all these mathematical tricks so that I could afford a $500 iPad when this one suits my needs just fine. I tell that story not so you guys can feel sorry for me. I, I tell that story not so, you can, uh, not so that I can come across as, you know, sort of this, oh, poor Andy, you know. Let's, let's, all, let's take an offering and get him a new iPad. <laughs> I, I, tell that so that I, I, say, I tell you that story so that you can begin to see the markers of maybe greed in your own life. Because I was blinded to it. Because I was rationalizing it. And ultimately it took the wisdom of my wife who said, is, just, is this just the next thing in a long line of technology purchases that you just had to have and were willing to do anything to, to get it? And I said, yes it is. And as stupid as it sounds, the Lord has had to heal my heart of that. And continually, I have to remind myself that I don't need the latest and greatest, that I can appreciate technology, I can use technology without being ruled by it. And greed was in my heart. Well, Zacchaeus begins to experience grace. Right? I mean, we realize that, that money makes a terrible master. We realize that there's this sedu- seductive pull to, to greed and to wealth. But I love this story because it's full of grace. And, and that we get the first glimpse of grace in, in verse 3. Zacchaeus, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a tree. The the first evidence of of grace and salvation coming to Zacchaeus' life is that he climbed a tree. I know you don't know what that means yet, but let let me break it down for you. In traditional culture, it was not freedom and rights that mattered. That's in our culture. The, the things that we uphold the most is our personal freedom and our personal rights. That ought to sound familiar. That's the world in which we live. But in traditional culture, in ancient culture, it was not, it was not sort of freedom and rights. It was dignity and honor that mattered. And so for an adult man who was already short, who was already hated, To climb a tree in order to see Jesus shows us that this man was not just wanting to see Jesus. He was eager to see Jesus. And eager probably is not strong enough of a word. In other words, Zacchaeus did not approach Jesus with pride, standing on his wealth and his merits. But rather, he presented himself to Jesus with humility, willing to be ridiculed in order to get a glimpse of Jesus. Willing to be ridiculed. A short, hated man climbed a tree in order to see Jesus. 
He was willing to be ridiculed in order to get a glimpse of Jesus. I wonder how many of you are here today and the primary barrier to faith in your life is the fear of ridicule, the fear of what people will think, the fear of how can I go to the office on Monday having made a decision for Christ on Sunday. And here's this man who is hated. He's short and he climbs a tree because he wants to see Jesus. May we all come to that place. And when Jesus chooses him, the least virtuous person in all of the crowd, everything changes. When Jesus comes to him, looks at him in the tree, and says, today I'm going to your house, in those moments, everything changes. You would think that Jesus would would pick somebody out of their high morality. You would think that Jesus would pick a more virtuous person. But Zacchaeus, knowing that he's the most hated man in the crowd, that he has ridiculed himself before all of these people because he climbed a tree in order to see Jesus, but yet Jesus still approaches him. Jesus picks out the least moral, the least virtuous person in the crowd and says, today I'm going to dine with you. Today I, I am going to spend time with you. In other words, today, it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what you have done. Jesus is willing to come to you if you'll show yourself to be eager for him. Oh, come on, church. Sometimes we allow this, what I've done in the past and my actions and I've failed and we feel like we got to get all of our stuff together before we come to Jesus. But really, we just come to Jesus with an eager and open heart that we might get a glimpse of him willing even to be ridiculed in the midst. And so after that moment, everything changes, and I need to hurry. And where we get a glimpse of grace, where Zacchaeus climbs a tree, we get grace revealed through his two promises. Here's a man captured with greed in his heart, willing to do anything to to increase his bottom line, He meets Jesus and he gives two promises. First one is he's going to give away half of his income. Now this is a clear indication that grace had come into his heart and that his heart has been dramatically changed, right? Because the law that was that was that was before him, the law that he knew, the law that he had probably had memorized. Uh, was that, that the law just simply required 10%. And, and, and so, you know, I mean, the scriptures that we call the Old Testament, they had themselves. And so Zacchaeus could have easily said, oh, I've come to know Jesus, now I'm going to give 10%. But Zacchaeus knew this critical fact, that love will always take us further than the law ever could. And when it comes to generosity in our lives, when it comes to giving in our lives, so many of us look at the Old Testament and we say, oh, I should give 10%. And we live our entire New Testament Christian lives walking that line of 10%. When God wants to say, I have changed your heart, grace has come, may you overcome greed with radical generosity. Radical generosity. He wanted to go further. And so Zacchaeus' question was not, oh, Jesus, I've come to know you now. How much must I give? Zacchaeus' question was, how much can I give? And some of you today, I, I just want to call you to deep discernment. Is your question when it comes to giving and generosity, how much must I give? Or is your question, how much can I give? Because Zacchaeus came to the conclusion that he could give, he could give away half of his income, pay back four times what he had stolen unfairly, and still be able to live, and still be able to meet his needs financially. Some of you today, your next step of faith is to unleash generosity in your life. Some of you today, your next step of faith is to begin generosity at a level of 10%, just a level of obedience. Because greed so so grips our heart that one of the only ways to combat it is exactly what I taught these kids with cookies, is to give away. 
to give away. And sometimes we'll want to just share and call it good. And it was subtle with the kids, but I said, I want to take you beyond sharing, and I want to call you to giving stuff away. I want to call you to generosity. That's the only thing that will beat greed in our lives. The, the second thing, the second promise that Zacchaeus makes is to give away four times uh, the amount that he had stolen unfairly. Now again, there's, there's provision in the law for this. According to Leviticus 5.16, if you stole anything, you could make restitution for that by paying it back with 20% interest. And so the law is already says, yes, pay it back, pay 20% interest, and we'll call it good. That's what the law says. But again, Zacchaeus, being truly changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, says, I'm not just going to do what the law requires. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to do what is in line with the grace that's been given to me. And so he doesn't just pay it back. He pays it back 300%. He pays it back and gives 300% interest. Zacchaeus is truly a changed man. In response to this, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Notice that he didn't say, if you live like this, salvation will come. He says, salvation has come. In other words, God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to salvation. So Zacchaeus went from impressing the poor to a champion of justice. He went from accruing wealth at the expense of people around him to serving people at the expense of his own wealth. And money went from being his chief pursuit in his life to being just money. A a tool to be used for good and for serving people. Money went from his God to a tool to serve and to honor his God. Some of you need to make that switch today. That you have as your chief pursuit the accumulation of stuff and wealth. It sits as, as, you, as, your, at your, God, as your God. But let me say to you today, the switch that you need to make is place God in, put God in his place and allow the wealth that he has given to you and entrusted you to serve and to honor him. To be a tool to point to his praise. Because money is amoral. Money is without morality on its own. Some of us kind of misunderstand that. We say, oh, the the Bible says money is evil. And so we look at rich people and we say, they're evil. And then we say, I wish I was evil. Right? Right? Some of us misunderstand scripture as, the, as saying money is evil, but the scripture says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, the love of money will give root to all sorts of nasty and evil things in our life. But being rich and, and having money is not evil. It's the love of money that is evil. And so money is, is amoral. It's more, without morality on its own. What happens is that it takes on the character and morality of those who manage it and steward it. So if money is evil, it's because your heart is evil. If money is good, it's because your heart is good. Money becomes a reflection of the heart of the person who's managing it. Now how can we do all of this? And I, I promise I'm almost done. How can we do all of this? Can we really release ourselves from the grip of greed just by sort of doubling our efforts to live more generously? And I would argue with you that the answer is simply no. Yes, generosity will help us overcome greed, but it's not the end-all answer. Second Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. There's only one man who is truly rich, who has infinite wealth, and it is Jesus. All the world belongs and belonged to him. Yet he became poor, so that you and I might become rich. I'm not talking about the kind of rich that means we would drive a Mercedes to church. 
But he became poor. He gave up his infinite wealth that you and I might be spiritually rich. Jesus gave up, let me say it to you this way, Jesus gave up all of his treasure in heaven in order to make you his treasure. Do you hear that today? And I mean really hear it. I mean, I don't mean just, yeah, I heard it. But do you hear it? Do you allow that truth to sink into your heart? That Jesus gave up all the treasure in heaven in order to make you his treasure. That's a beautiful gospel. And that is what truly can free us from the chains of greed. Is not only generosity, but looking at the one who was infinitely rich and became poor so that you and I can experience his riches. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, theologian and pastor Tim Keller says this, when you see Christ dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. Money will cease to be the currency of of your significance and security, and you will want to bless others with what you have. Let me read it again. When you see Christ dying to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. Money will cease to be the currency of your significance and security, and you will want to bless others with what you have. I started the message by saying all of us worship. All of us love and trust and obey something. Which means that idols can't be removed. If all we tried to do was remove the idols in our life, then we would ultimately fall back into idolism trying to worship something. That's part of who we are. We must worship something or someone. So idols cannot simply be removed. They must be replaced. And so if So the greed in your heart must be replaced by the one who, though rich, became poor that you might become truly rich. My goal today is not just to get us to remove the greed that's in our heart. My goal is that greed might be replaced by the one who was rich and became poor for you and I. And that God might become the person of our worship.